Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we've got Brian Pope joining us. Brian is a managing director for Bearings Alternative Investments here in Charlotte. Bearings is a um, it's a name you've heard a lot more over the over the course of the last couple of years. They've been um, increasingly active in the startup and investor community here. They've sponsored the Southeast FinTech Venture Conference for the last two years, and they'll be hosting it again, or not just sponsoring, but hosting it the last two years. And they're hosting it again here in November of 2019. Um, as a result, Brian and I've kind of gotten a chance to get to know each other and, and gotten together a few times. And so bringing him to the podcast today, I thought was really interesting. I, uh, I wanted to circle back around and, and get an investor and some more investors on the podcast and just talking about private equity, angel investments, growth equity, what that space looks like, why it's something that is worth considering Um what are the implications for it? And, you know, I mean, from Brian's perspective, how do they evaluate those opportunities and use it on an institutional level? And certainly recognize that, you know, we're not institutional or uh, most folks on here listening to the podcast aren't institutional investors. Um, but, I mean, there's always things that you can take from an institutional level and bring down to the to the personal individual family level as well. So that was kind of the um, the gist behind the podcast today was just running, running through some, you know, some complex topics with, with Brian and, and getting his feedback and getting his thought process and trying to still as much knowledge as we can that he has, um, to share it with the audience. So really cool podcast interview today, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, you know, again, just a huge thanks for bearings for a agreeing to be on the podcast and then you know, B for just being a, a fantastic community um, uh, advocate, supporter, and everything else. Um, we're extraordinarily fortunate, I think, to have them here in Charlotte. And you know, next time you get a chance to to stop in, or next time you see Brian or anybody from Bearings, just thank them for for being such a, a supporter. So, anyways, um, just a, a couple other quick highlights on things that I see going on or things that are going on in the community right now. We had a, a really, really good turnout for our Charlotte Angel Connection quarterly event um, recently with um, Alex from 2U Laundry and John and Lister from Idea Fund. Um, we had 95 registrants, 65 people show up, so pretty good turnout. Um, thank you to Alex for, for agreeing to be an entrepreneur on stage and kind of, you know, um, questioned pretty hard by, by uh, Lister and John. I think both Lister and John answering questions and kind of helping Alex as, uh, through, through the process. And then Alex for himself just responding to the questions, knowing his business really well, being unflustered is a really, really fantastic event. We will do that on an annual basis. I've already talked to Lister and John about how we can grab or um, uh, solicit uh, founders to apply to be Alex next year. We had a number of founders in the audience, so I don't think it'll be that hard. 
So really great event. Uh, special thanks to Alex and Lister and John for, for making it all possible. And then for Walt Fry for hosting it over at 222 or 223 South Brevard Street. So um, another thing to be on the lookout for March 20th, we will be doing the, um, I'll be co or um, hosting uh, the um, uh, public house event over at Packard Place. So Dan's not going to be able to be in town. So I'll be hosting it. It should be a great event. Event. I think we've got Derek Wayne um, from Stratified who's going to be up there with me. So should be should be a lot of fun. So please come check us out. And also remember that Dan's got his incoming class from QC FinTech that should be here within the next month. So stay tuned on opportunities to see and learn more about those classes. In the meantime, thank you for being a listener on the Charlotte Angel Connection. All right, Brian, welcome, uh, welcome to the show today. Certainly glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, yeah, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for uh, for having me. I'm excited to uh, to be here. Uh, yeah, no, um, I'm excited to be back on the 26th floor of the Bearings Building. Y'all got one heck of a place up here. Yeah, no, we uh, we love the location, and um, you know this is a a space that we've been able to use for uh, for a lot of different external community oriented events, uh, events for clients um, as well. So it's a, it's a great space. Um, and I know, um, you know, I want to say thank you uh, to you from my perspective, uh, all the work that you've done uh, early stage adventure, you know, being part of the community and just helping to, um, you know, build that momentum, kind of polarize things. So uh, I'm excited from a personal perspective to, to be here to, to support that as well. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Um, so we're in the, again, beautiful space. Um, you've done the Southeast FinTech Venture Conference here um, for the last two years where you've hosted it. You've hosted some other things. Um, the name bearings is getting out more in Charlotte these days as a result of sure. all the good stuff that you're doing. With that being said, um, can you give us a little bit of background on kind of bearings, where you are here in Charlotte, um, and um, kind of um, how you f- how you tie into what we're going to dive into, which is the venture capital space, et cetera, et cetera. So background on bearings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, big picture, and uh, you mentioned the, the Southeast FinTech Venture uh, Conference that will be coming up this year in November. Uh, yeah. It'll be the third annual one there, so something that we're just excited about to, to get 200, 250 folks uh, together. Um, so f- the, the bearings uh, platform and, uh, you know, the perspective on, on the firm there, um, you know, I used to think we were one of Charlotte's kind of hidden secrets, um, but I don't think uh, that's the case anymore. Um, so we are a, a global institutional investment management firm today. Um, you know, we, we manage north of $300 billion on behalf of our clients. Um, and it's a global presence um, with, you know, broad, really deep um, asset coverage. Um, so, you know, when you think about the, uh, the clients that were stewards of their capital managing that money, it's largely institutional. Um, so public-private pensions, foundations, endowments, uh, family offices, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, um, and then also, um, you know, high net worth channel uh, as well. And we're um, providing solutions there, but also um, providing capital to our customers. Our customers are corporations and institutions that are seeking capital. Um, and you know, one one other thing, I think folks of uh, um, from your uh, podcast would would appreciate. I I can't forget to mention that Bearings uh, has a new podcast as well. Okay, cool. Um, so it's a uh, the Bearings uh, Streaming Income uh, podcast. Uh, awesome. Uh, that's been launched on the the Apple uh, podcast. Okay, cool. 
So, um, and that's what it's called, bearing streaming income? Yep, that's okay. it, streaming income. Okay, awesome. We'll have to tune into it. So, um, how long have you been here? So, I've uh, been with the firm for, uh, for 10 years now. Um, and, you know, it's been an exciting time. Um, you know, we've seen the, uh, the firm uh, mature, you know, I think on a, on a global scale, but also here in Charlotte. Um, so, you know, it's the, the headquarters today um, for a global firm. Um, you know, the money that we're managing really is, is global. Uh, a third of that is uh, from clients in North America, a third in Europe, and a third in Asia. Okay. Um, and we, um, you know, continue to, I think, grow throughout our, our footprint across the globe. Um, 2,000 plus uh, business and investment professionals uh, today. And it's been, been great to be a part of that. Yeah, no, I bet. Um, so, um, global investment management firm, $300 billion in assets. Um, your role within Bearings, um, what what capacity do you serve in? Yeah, absolutely. So funneling that down a, a little bit, um, you know, about two hundred and fifty billion of those assets under management are in the um, uh, credit debt financing space, public equities, and multi-strategy, um, and then about fifty billion of that uh, it sits in an alternative investments platform. Okay, um, and that's where I sit. Okay, um, so that particular platform, uh, the asset classes that we're we're covering, um, you think about it in in regards as. Um, uh, real assets mm-hmm. and private equity. Uh, real assets will be real estate, infrastructure, natural resources, and then private equity is buyouts, growth, and venture. Uh, within our group, we have 400 plus uh, professionals covering those assets. And um, you know, if you think about how we access those markets, uh, we do it all the way from um, you know minor, uh, majority control investments down to uh, uh, fund commitments. And then kind of sprinkled in between is uh, minority uh, investments as well. Um, and that's the part of the business that I sit in is a, uh, a private funds and uh, private minority equity investments program. Um, and specifically, uh, I cover the investment uh, process for our private equity program. Okay. And again, continuing that funnel, uh, private equity uh, to us is the buyouts, growth, and venture capital. So I spend my time speaking with other investors uh, as they're managing private funds, uh, small buyouts, uh, growth, equity, and venture capital, uh, and then making direct investments into companies that, that fit in those categories as well. Do you find it's a disadvantage as a private equity guy sitting in on Tryon Street in Charlotte, North Carolina, when so much exists in San Francisco, New York, Boston, um, or is it fine to operate out of right here? Yeah, you know, um, it's funny when I um, used to travel around kind of 10 or 15 years ago, um, and you'd say you were from Charlotte, you know, lots of times you'd you'd hear Charlotte and you say Charlotte, North Carolina, and yeah. they, they kind of get where you're from. And uh, it was a little test I did when I traveled. And, is that by the beach? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so is that, uh, is that Charlottesville? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, you, I've noticed through the years that that is occurring, um, you know, less frequently. Yeah. So Charlotte, uh, I think is on the map and, you know, I think you can see that, um, from where the capital is coming, um, in from, as well as the, um, the the startups and the companies that are here, um, so we can look back on our um, you know some of the historical transaction activity that we follow, and um, you know kind of specifically in the venture space, um, you know fifty percent of the the capital um, of the deals that have been done in in North Carolina 
um, are from uh, California, New York, Mass, and North Carolina. Uh, the largest percent is California. Um, so we're attracting capital from the traditional uh, VC ecosystems, uh, but we're also developing local capital here. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think that there um, there used to be maybe a little bit of a disadvantage to uh, to local companies because of a lack of local capital. Yeah. But we're attracting outside capital and we're building that local capital as well. So it's just fantastic to see. See, um, kind of stay on that for a couple uh, minutes. You go to conferences. You talk to people across the. Um, across the country and probably from that perspective across the world. Um, perception of Charlotte from a capital base, um, same thing, it's growing. Um, it's, uh, we've got, uh, um, shoot, Frontier Capital raised $700 million last year. Um, uh, uh, Valpier's Capital just raised 485 or 500 or whatever the final number is. I mean, those numbers kind of speak a little bit louder Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think um, the ecosystem has been known for um, the financial institution presence um, of the, the commercial banking um, and then all the um, kind of tangent support uh, groups that, that kind of, you know, rode that wave. Yeah. Um, I think that tied into kind of the boutique investment banking um, that grew up in Charlotte. Um, and also some of those firms that you mentioned in the, um, in the buyout of the growth equity space that have just done tremendously well. Um, you know, they have um, invested in their people, uh, grown their organizations organically, um, you know, increased their, um, their capital and invested uh, amounts uh, gradually over time. Uh, so it's been great to see. Um, so I think outside of, um, of the Carolinas, uh, folks know the financial institutions, the boutique investment banks, uh, and the growth and the buyout. Um, and I think venture capital um, will follow on the hills of that. Um, and you're starting to see that kind of in the last five years and kind of some of the numbers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that that will, you know, maybe take another five to ten years, but um, you'll start to, uh, to be recognized um, kind of nationally. It's the, it's the difficult process. I talk about it from time to time. Um, the capital aspect of the Charlotte um, kind of early stage investing scene, startup scene, it's, it's like you're standing on a train track um, and you're looking down the tracks and you see that there's a train coming or maybe you see that there's a train on the track, but because it's so far away, you can't actually see that it's coming. But it is, right? It's coming. It's just hard to see how fast it's actually moving and how far it's progressed because of perception of that stuff, right? So um, it's coming. Five to ten years seems like it's going to be forever, but it'll be here before you know it. Yeah, and you know, I think it's a it's a good point. Um, but it's um, you know, I think the development of that capital is a um, it's a when, not if. Yeah. Um, so it's a timing, uh, not a question of whether it is is developing. From a professional perspective, what's your view on um, on private equity, growth capital, venture capital, right? I think, I mean, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past and has been talked about a lot by folks in Charlotte is the reason that there's not more early stage capital here in Charlotte is because very few people have made their money that way. Um, and so they don't understand it. You deal with it every day. What's your what's your view on that space? How do you look at it? Um, 
Let's talk about it from a professional perspective, somebody that kind of lives, breathes, eats it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, generally speaking, when you think about those asset classes of venture capital growth um, and buyouts, um, it is a great way for investors to, uh, to pick up incremental returns from public market equivalents. Um, you know, you think about um, some of the inefficiencies um, of private markets, um, some of the lower entry uh, valuations and multiples, which is maybe not as common today as it, as it has been in prior years. But, um, uh, and then, um, you know, there is a, as long as you are willing to, um, to be a long-term investor, um, to be able to um, take on that illiquidity uh, risk, um, you can be very rewarded um, relative to, to public market equivalents. So, um, you know, I think it is a, uh, it's a great place to earn that incremental return as well as um, at potentially the same levels of volatility, um, sometimes even, even less um, due to kind of the, um, the, the lack of the need to mark to market yeah. um, on a you know, minute by minute daily uh, basis. You mean it wasn't marked from September 27th to December 24th <laughs> like the rest of the market was? Yeah, you know, I mean, a great example is the, you know, the bit of uh, public market volatility we just experienced at the end of, of 2018. Um, and, um, you know, what private markets are able to do is um, to be a witness to uh, what's going on in the public markets, yeah. um, to, you know, react to how they're managing their businesses, how they're thinking about um, liquidity paths, uh, value creation, um, and use that information um, to make decisions, but not necessarily have to deal with the day-to-day, uh, month-to-month um, kind of mark-to-market volatility that comes along with that. And, you know, what we've seen at the beginning of this year is those public market volatilities have subsided a bit and, and things have come back. How do you look at it from a risk perspective, right? I mean, the return's the thing that's always talked about. Um, the illiquidity aspect is known, right? You know you're not going to get your money back for 5 to 10, 13 years, whatever the lockup is from, um, from, um, from a private equity fund, right? Um, but investors always think about it from the standpoint, I could lose all my money. Um, and that's certainly possible. Um, but how do you look at it from yeah. a risk perspective? Uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I think the, the perception of venture capital, growth capital, um, and the returns that these asset classes should deliver, um, it is so, you know, widely across the board yeah. in terms of um, what people expect. Um, how many funds go out of business that you see, right? Just, just they take in a hundred million dollars and next thing you know, everything they invested in turns to zero. Cause, um, that seems to be the, the fear factor that I think holds some people back is I could lose everything. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a great question. It's uh, I think it's actually a, a fascinating aspect of, of private funds. So there is certainly what we refer to as survivorship bias. Yeah. Um, that the the best funds survive, and you know you're able to see the returns of the best funds, but you you don't see the funds that wash out. Um, and I've done some uh, some interesting analysis um, of the number of funds raised uh, annually 
versus the, um, the number of funds that are reporting their performance. So there are a few different uh, benchmark uh, reporting service providers that you can get your hands on. Um, and if you track, uh, I, I know the stats for venture capital, so it, it's a lot easier. Yeah, let's just stay there. If you look at the number of funds that are raised versus the number of funds that report their performance, generally speaking, it's about 30%. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an important distinction because if you think about public market investors, they know their benchmark every single minute, every single hour, every single day, and, and they're able to manage against that, right? Yeah. From a, a private market investor perspective, um, they, they don't have visibility on the benchmark um, because of the lack of, um, you know, complete uh, reporting. Yeah. Um, so it's a challenge, and that ultimately means that, you know, folks like myself um, spend a lot of time doing, um, you know, deep dive diligence um, on individual uh, funds, individual companies, um, and also a, a relative uh, value assessment to their peers and to their companies um, so that we can make sure that we're making the best investments uh, that we can, uh, uh, that are out there in the, in the benchmark. So how do you go about doing manager selection in that space then, right? In the public market space, you make sure that you've got tenure, you've got this, you're looking for somebody that owns their own fund, right? I mean, it's um, from investing in a mutual fund, there's been a thousand or million articles written about how to select a good mutual fund. How do you go about selecting a good money manager from the private equity venture capital space? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for, um, it's, it's kind of fun to talk about, uh, the venture capital space, um, because I think it's one of the most challenging ones. And, um, I don't know if you do puzzles. Um, so we're, we're a puzzle family at the, uh, at the moment uh, we've always been, but the way I like to describe it is, um, you know, there are uh, about a thousand venture capital firms in the U S. Yeah. Um, there are you know, 200 or so in Europe. Um, there's a thousand plus in Asia, a lot, uh, a lot in China. Um, so if you were to take, if you were to go home and take out, um, you know, four or five, 500 piece puzzles yeah, and you dumped them all on the table at once, shuffled them up, and then you try to recreate those puzzles, that's essentially what, what we're trying to do. Um, and the way that we're, we're rebuilding those is, um, you know, we, we classify and we segment um, those various managers. Um, so we think about, you know, where they're investing geographically. We think about what stage they're investing in. Um, we think about what sector exposures uh, they're providing. Um, and we try to create portfolios uh, based on where we see opportunity, where capital is deployed, um, and pull those puzzle pieces together um, to create kind of a unique um, portfolio based on kind of the risk return uh, client profiles that we're, we're trying to build. Yeah. Why is or why has venture capital, growth capital taken such a kind of a front seat over the course of the last 20 years? Um, I mean, so to ask a different way, um, 20 years ago, every company in the world was going public at a young age, um, and that's not necessarily the case anymore, and it seems like venture capital, private equity, growth capital, whatever you take, has taken more of a prominent role in those companies' life cycles. 
um, than the early IPO. Why has that become the yeah. case? Um, so I think you could probably um, say two reasons. One is probably a, um, a capital supply, and, and two is um, kind of the innovation waves, I'll call them. So one, on, on capital supply, you know, private companies are staying private for longer. Um, and you've had a late stage growth capital asset class that's really matured over the last five to 10 years to be a standalone asset class. Um, so if we were having this conversation in 2000, we wouldn't be talking about growth equity as an asset class. Um, so that, that's one that has helped to support the overall ecosystem from a, a capital structure perspective. Um, and then the second is the innovation waves. Um, and, you know, if you think back across the, the decades, you know, the first innovation rave really started um, with hardware and the personal computer, uh, 80s and 90s, uh, that then, um, you know, shifted into uh, the web. So the age of the internet, um, uh, email, uh, and then that next shift uh, that we've experienced over the last 10 years is that shift to mobile. Um, so smartphones, social. And, um, you know, what I believe that we'll be going through, uh, we're experiencing it now, but I think it will be another decade or two decade long, is those waves are starting to come together. Um, so, you know, we're experiencing technology and innovation that can capitalize on, uh, on those waves. Um, and I think that is, that is really the underlying, um, you know, key reason uh, why venture and growth, um, you know, has gotten such momentum. Yeah. Uh, those big innovation waves are, are really capitalizing on, on one another. Um, what does that next wave look like then? I mean, that's one of the benefits of your, of what you do, right? Is you, um, you kind of see into the future five to 10 years, what, the person sitting in South Park that never pays attention to venture capital and what all these little startup firms are looking at, you see what's going to be kind of public knowledge five yeah. to ten years from now. They don't see it until it comes out in Time Magazine four or five years from now. So what's coming? Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it is fun. I mean, it's uh, one of the uh, exciting things about uh, you know my job of, of being kind of at the forefront of uh, of hearing hearing uh, new things for the uh, the first time. Um, you know. I tend to, when, I, when I'm looking at investments uh, and looking at markets, uh, I tend to do what I call a, a pre-postmortem and then a, uh, a pre-post-champagne. Um, so the, the pre-postmortem folks probably have heard because, you know, uh, product software developers, if you think about everything that it would take for, uh, for a product uh, to go wrong, that's the, the pre-postmortem. So if you imagine the demise of a product, the demise of a market, demise of a company, what are the, the risk um, that, that gets you there? Um, and then the, the pre-post-champagne is, hey, we've had a great investment, it's a great market, great asset class, and you know we're popping the champagne. Um, so that question that you asked is kind of a, um, a pre-post-champagne type of analysis, right? And um, you know, those waves, uh, where I get really excited is enterprise technology. And one of the things I like to talk about is uh, SaaS 2.0. Um, and it follows on the heels of um, you know, software as a service uh, that when that initial business model um, came, uh, came to the market, 
you know, it's really about a shift in delivery. Um, you know, creating a subscription revenue model that was tied to being off-premise online delivery. Uh, then that slowly shifted to uh, being on the cloud, uh, being mobile. Um, so now cloud, mobile, computing power, tons of data. Um, that all now means that SaaS 2.0 has to have what I call automated analytics. And that automated analytics has to be predictive. Um, so now SaaS 2.0 is kind of a, a, a bare minimum bar. Um, if your product solution, if your go-to-market strategy is not combining all those waves um, to harness the power of some type of automated analytics um, that helps um, enterprises um, make better decisions, quicker, faster, cheaper, um, then ultimately, um, you know, your competitor will be building that SaaS 2.0. So um, I think you're going to see that as kind of the next big wave of the, of the next decade plus, and you're going to see it permeate um, all verticals, all industries. Um, so, you know, you're definitely seeing it in healthcare, fintech, insurtech, property tech, um, you know, lots of different areas that have been less digitized historically mm -hmm. that are now experiencing that. So it's, uh, I think that's really exciting. Um, no, that's cool. What, um, let's kind of circle back around. Um, I skipped around a little bit. Circle back around to where we were a few minutes ago talking about uh, private equity, venture capital, the growth of it over the course of the last 20 years. Um, has it already or is it in the process of stripping growth returns from public equity markets. Um, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, um, so I think in, in late stage, um, because the, the growth capital has become a more standalone asset class, um, you know, you are seeing companies stay private for longer, as I mentioned, and what that means is that when they do um, hit the public markets. Um, they should be larger um, in terms of revenue. Um, they should have more visibility on you know positive uh, free cash flow, yeah. positive EBITDA. That is not necessarily uh, the case with some business models. Um, so one could argue because the companies are staying private for longer and achieving you know larger scale that the private markets are able to um, to take advantage of those returns yep. that are no longer there for public investors because they're investing later. Yep. Um, so and I, I think that there's some some truth to that, um, but. Um, not it has to be on a company by company basis. Yeah. Um, from a, um, so you mentioned it earlier from a from a customer based perspective, you're a third U.S. or a third North America, I think, um, a third Europe, a third Asia. Um, what's the rest of the world doing in the growth um, space? Right, private equity, growth capital. Are we? I mean, forever, San Francisco and New York have kind of led that. Um, led that charge, or um, are other markets rapidly approaching, or even passing the U.S. from a um, early stage kind of private markets perspective? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, each of those three regions is, um, is unique. Um, so kind of thinking about them individually, um, and maybe starting with Europe first. So, um, you know, Europe has had a, an early stage venture scene for, um, for about two decades. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think the, the common, um, common opinion there is, um, you know, Europe's probably five to ten years behind the U.S. and behind the Bay Area. Um, they have not necessarily developed a, a traditional growth equity standalone class. Um, so you've seen the, the market there be supported um, by a couple, couple local European growth players, um, but you've seen it being supported by the U.S., uh, the U.S. Um, late stage or life cycle uh, venture funds okay. who will, um, you know, if you ask a European, they're the, the flyover U.S. investors who will come in and, and invest the growth capital. Um, now, I think the, the trends there, you're seeing the same technology trends, I think, on, on both the enterprise and consumer side um, there in Europe, um, but you have a little bit more of a value play in Europe. Um, companies tend to uh, be a little bit more capital efficient. Um, so when you look at the dollars invested, you know, per unicorn, for example, um, it's a more efficient ratio than it is in the U.S. Um, shifting to Asia, um, you know, Asia has been a little bit more of an insular market. Um, and you think about Asia really as China and everything non-China. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, especially China, um, has had a lot of capital support from uh, corporate venture. Yeah. Um, and I think that's across the board from early to late. Um, and probably what you've seen in um, non-China is um, the development of a buyout asset class um, where you've had venture, you've had growth, You've had investors that are willing to step in from a minority equity position to uh, to build businesses, but you haven't had the um, the debt financing and the um, the ability to lever companies in Asia. Um, so Asia is interesting as the the buyout asset class is maturing there. Uh, Europe, the growth asset class is maturing, and then in the U.S. you have a really robust early growth and buyout asset class. Okay. Um, you mentioned something there that um, I haven't ever asked anybody about. Um, so you'll be my first person. How do you view, um, how do you, and you were talking about it specifically to China, how do you view corporate venture um, from y'all's perspective, right? Lowe's has a venture fund, Duke has a venture fund. I mean, everybody out there these days, yeah. and that didn't exist 10 or 15. How do you coordinate, work with them? Um, et cetera, et cetera. What's yeah. that space look like? Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of data out there on, on corporate venture. And when you look back of, um, for the, the participation rates that corporate venture has had in the marketplace, historically it's always been kind of 20, 25%, okay. which is a lot higher than anybody ever would imagine. Um, so corporate venture is, has always been part of the ecosystem um, but what you're seeing now is, um, you know, those levels are more at 35, 40%. Um, and, you know, I think the question there becomes, um, you know, is, 
is that a healthy step up um, or is that um, a cyclical um, step up? So is it, is it structural? Is it cyclical? Um, you know, I think we'll, we'll certainly find out the next time that there is a, um, an economic downturn, an esoteric type of event, um, and it will probably right size back into that kind of 25 to 30% level. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think from a corporate perspective, you're seeing an awareness tied to, um, the need for innovation and the need for, um, information technology solutions. Um, so previously, a lot of corporations probably had innovation hubs that didn't necessarily invest outside of that. Yeah. Um, so now I think for, uh, for mostly the right reasons, they're taking that innovation bucket and splitting it in half, just to use an easy example. Um, half remains with you know, IT innovation and internal spending, and the other half is utilized to um, you know, partner with startups, um, and that might be with some, some seed financing, or they may be investing in later stage, more mature vendors uh, that they're using. Um, so I, I think it can be very healthy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, oftentimes I, I don't get concerned with volume. I get concerned with velocity. Um, so when you have volume and velocity coming at the same time, which you could argue that you have in late stage venture today, uh, that's where I get a little bit concerned. But, um, you know, the, the corporate venture capital volume uh, is on a little bit of a higher level than where it's been historically. Um, and the velocity is starting to pick up. But, um, yeah, I think that um, it should right size um, in the near term. Um, stay on the corporate piece, and then I want to move back to volume, velocity, and kind of tenure horizons. Um, are, are corporations essentially outsourcing their R&D with their venture arm? Is that kind of what you're referencing there? Or? I, you may, maybe in some regards. Um, you know, one thing about technology is, you know, the root of technology solutions are uh, – to make things better, faster, cheaper. So when you look at a startup who is trying to uh, gain traction with an enterprise, um, if they can make um, the, the point that they're going to um, provide a solution that can be implemented quicker than the internal teams, um, can be implemented cheaper than the internal teams, can have just the same ROI, if not greater. Yeah. Um, and then from a probability perspective, those startups, like they're going to make it happen, right? Yeah. Versus internal teams, what you often see is there's initiatives or, you know, think, things just change. Yeah. So the probability of failure arguably could be lower for a startup. Um, and I, I think corporations, you know, just have a, an awareness that um, they should be, you know, considering external options. Um, so it likely is a part of their kind of R&D um, budget yeah. that they're looking for external solutions um, and kind of buying rather than uh, building. Yeah. You talked, um, you just mentioned um, volume, velocity, uh, volume and velocity yeah. and, um, you know, I always think and maybe I incorrectly think of private equity, venture capital, growth capital. I think of it as... If I'm making a commitment today, I have to think about 10 years from now, right? Because you're kind of sort of tied up for 10 years. 
Um, do you worry about making a 10 year commitment at this point in time? So, you know, yeah, so do you worry about 2029. You're exactly right. So for, um, you know, for a 10 year term fund, typically what happens is, you know, you have a five year investment period, dollars goes out the door and then there's the harvesting period. <laughs> um, realizations distributions happen in years five to 10. Um, you're starting to see a shift in what was a traditional five-year investment period shrink to four. Um, you know, that would be more in the buyout world. Um, in the growth world, what was traditionally four years shrinks to three. Um, in the venture world, what was traditionally three with some reserves uh, is starting to shrink to, to two. Okay. Um, so that's a signal of the velocity. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, so the, the shrinking periods for the investment um, going out the door, um, the shrinking periods from uh, one fund vintage to the next, um, you know, does generally give me some pause. Um, now, thinking about the velocity on a, uh, on a smaller individual scale, um, you know, in, in venture, one of the things that, um, you know, gives me some uh, it's more concern than, than others is, um, you know, it's no longer about becoming a unicorn. It is now about how fast you can become a unicorn. And, you know, call me simple, but I think that there's just, you know, something a little disturbing um, about that. Um, you know, I think the, the example that made all the headlines last year was, was Bird. Yeah, you know, from startup to unicorn was um, you know one and a quarter years. Okay. Um, Does it make me old that I don't know what bird is? That's fast. Yeah. Um, It might make you old. It also will make you old that I haven't ridden a bird. Okay. Uh, Um, So scooters, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. All right. Good. Um, So, um, so then. Then how do you approach it from an institutional perspective, knowing that, um, you know, things are different now than they might have been two years ago? Yeah. And, or do you just look at it, the fact that I'm going to deploy capital this year, I'm going to deploy it next year, I'm going to deploy it the following year. So from a time perspective, I'm just diversified because I'm going to invest across different time periods and on average they'll work out there um there is that element of uh diversification through consistent deployment yeah um so you never want to step in and out uh of the markets in terms of your your vintage exposure um similar to trying to time the public markets so your dollar dollar cost averaging for lack of a better term Um, now you know uh the the practice that we have internally is we really challenge ourselves to think about um, each vintage by strategy. And we think about, so the 2019 venture capital vintage, the 2019 North America buyout vintage, um, where do we think that vintage will perform relative to history? Um, and across our team, we have views about whether that's over neutral, underperform. Um, and we have, um, we have long-term ranges that we manage against, but then tactically year to year, um, we will adjust our commitment levels. So, you know, for vintages where we feel like there's underperformances for that vintage over the next 10 years, um, we will start to underweight that. Um, 
so that way we we take the um, the tactical view um, and and tie that into kind of the long-term portfolio allocation uh, and construction so um, you know to give you an example in in venture um, from a from a blind pool perspective so uh, making fund commitments um, you know we prefer uh, early stage today um, so the phenomenon that we see continuing is um, the percentage of capital um, that's going into late stage um, from life cycle venture capital managers from growth capital managers and then from uh, corporate venture um, all that is increasing the deal sizes, increasing valuations for late stage businesses, um, making it difficult for your cash on cash returns. Uh, it's just harder to make money at higher levels, yeah. three times, four times. Um, and you know, conversely, at the early stage, um, you know, the percentage of capital and the percentage of deals has actually dropped. So you know, there's less competition there which is keeping, you know, certain instances, uh, deal sizes um, and valuations stable or, you know, slightly up. Yep. Um, so we'd rather have blind pool exposure in early stage. And as those companies mature, we know that there's a big back end of capital that's going to support those companies. Um, so that's how we're managing our, um, our blind pool. And then from a... Um, from a direct investment approach, it's a little bit of a um, of a barbell approach. So companies that are um, you know, kind of in that um, you know, kind of Series A, Series B type of range, where they have proven they've commercialized the product, de-risk from a technology perspective, and now it's execution and scale. Um, you know, kind of at that five to ten million run rate, um, trying to find the right companies that are that next inflection point. Um, or at the back end of the range where you have a company that's been around for, you know, 10 plus years, has been bootstrapped by the founder, um, hasn't taken in a lot of uh, dilutive um, um, capital, complex capital table. It's just the, in, the single founder and they're looking for institutional capital for the next five years. Yeah. Coming into a one-to-one -one relationship and providing minority equity um, is a really great um, return profile and relationship for growth capital. So we, we kind of have that um, uh, barbell approach um, at the moment. On the direct investing side, do you see the Southeast growing to a place where it's more, it's easier for y'all um, to find deals here rather than go elsewhere? Um, in other words, the maturity of the ecosystem in the Southeast and obviously most specifically to Charlotte um, is it becoming more attractive? Yeah. Um, you know, from a, um, from a geographic perspective, you know, our investment decisions really aren't based on um, local geographies, you know, where yeah. the company's headquartered. Um, you know, they, in today's time, businesses can build and scale from really any location. Um, you know, I'd say that uh, we as a population are continuing to uh, migrate to urban areas so I think there are some limitations about where a startup can actually like thrive but yeah. really you can build a startup anywhere um, but you know there are probably you know 20 30 urban areas that are going to really attract all the 
um, the capital over time. Um, so for us, it's not necessarily where companies located. Uh, it's more about the um, you know the founder, the end market, product market fit, uh, technology risk, um, and then how um, how a business is really going to to scale, um, uh, capture that market share, or build uh, build a new market. Yeah. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I don't know if I can mention our conversation publicly, so I'll just say I was talking to somebody the other day, um, and they mentioned that, um, and you're talking about 20 to 30 areas being able to be that space because of the urban nature of um, uh, kind of where we're moving to as a society. And so you sit here, we're in Charlotte, so we think naturally of Charlotte. Can Charlotte continue to become that? Um, and this person mentioned that there is a positive and negative to the um, to kind of the startup community in Charlotte about the pending BB&T SunTrust merger um, because it kind of gives the city that sense of relief. Ooh, we've got another big bank coming here. We don't have to worry so much about um, nurturing a startup kind of community, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not asking you to trash the SunTrust BB&T deal, um, but how does that help or hurt Charlotte um, from that perspective, um, perspective in your view, right? Yeah, uh, it's interesting to hear that feedback because I um, I would not have had kind of the negative connotations the first time that um, that has struck me. But it do, it makes naturally it kind of makes sense as soon as you hear it, right? Well, you know, I think if you're coming at it from the perspective of um, will um, yeah, you know, first it, it comes to talent and founders, right? Yeah. Talent founders, they've got ideas. What do they do with those ideas? Um, you know, does the presence of a, um, you know, another top 10 bank in Charlotte, does that diminish those individuals desires to do something on their own versus work for that? Um, you know, if anything, maybe it, it, it delays that decision. Yeah. But, you know, when you think about um, a founder that you want to get behind and invest, it, it's one who has a vision and is able to execute. Yeah. Um, you know, mission, mission, purpose, vision, execution. Um, those individuals, I think, will, you know, find a way to do it regardless of whether BB&T and SunTrust are here or not. Yeah. Right. So I don't think it's going to slow down um, that in any way. And, you know, I definitely look at it from the perspective of um, having those organizations here uh, just supports the overall ecosystem. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've got, um, you know, another uh, well-regarded, um, you know, voice to add into the ecosystem. Um, so, you know, kind of going back to some of the ingredients that an ecosystem needs, um, they need the human capital. So that's the founders and the talent to help them build that business. Um, they actually need dollars. And then the third thing is they need corporate partners, uh, government partners. Yeah. So, you know, one more corporate partner, especially one that has um, illustrated that they want to be part of innovation. Yeah. Um, is I think it's fantastic uh, to the whole ecosystem. Yeah. No, hopefully it's a positive. Um, what's next in um, kind of your view, you know, you, you kind of see other innovation hubs, right? You see San Francisco, you see New York, you see Boston. Um, just, we're kind of running up on our time limit and I want to honor your time. Um, 
what's next what's the next thing for charlotte's kind of startup early stage capital world right i mean dan set up his fund um he'll continue to raise capital from that perspective you'll see some other things what what do you see that's kind of out there in the one to three horizon that that continues to push charlotte down this path yeah so i think the next thing you'll see is um uh, is dispersion and you know what i mean by that is um you know charlotte has always been known as a um, financial center um it's always been known as a uh, banking financial center right um post-financial crisis i think charlotte really um you know, became known as a broader financial center, uh, asset management, uh, insurance. Um, and then I think you'll see now the dispersion, not just startups associated with financial technology um, as attracting a lot of capital. Um, you'll start to see that um, in other enterprise technology plays. Uh, you'll start to see it in healthcare. You'll start to see it in real estate and industrial. Um, so I think when you look at the, the Charlotte community and the footprint, um, you know, we've got some great institutions that are in those healthcare, uh, real estate and industrial sectors. Um, and going back to those innovation waves, those are some of the, the ones that have, you know, been less digitized yeah. uh, through the years. So, um, you're seeing, you know, those local institutions and the verticals that they serve kind of tying into innovation waves. Um, and I think that's where you'll see Charlotte continue to grow is, is more just dispersing uh, where the, the technology plays from a vertical perspective. Yeah. So, no, that's cool. That's good insight. So, and I agree um, 100%. Um, but, I mean, again, we're running up on time. I don't want to take more than I told you I would. Um, it's been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's been entertaining for, uh, for your listeners. And, uh, you know, I've enjoyed it as well. Appreciate the, uh, again, uh, the support that, uh, that you and, uh, and your listeners uh, as well have provided to, um, you know, the ecosystem here in Charlotte and the Carolinas. And, um, you know, looking forward to uh, continuing to, to watch it grow. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. Um, and um, it's, it's Bearing it's website, right? It's bearings.com. Is that where people can find out more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anything else we need to tell them? from a corporate um, responsibility perspective before we hang up. <laughs> uh, not that I'm aware of. I hear you. Well, thanks a lot, Brian. I appreciate it, man. Have a good rest of your All day. right. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey & Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey & Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.